Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. My name is Nathan Hobson, and today I'm going to be talking with Eiko Marco Sinoware about her book, Waste, Consuming Postwar Japan, released by Cornell University Press in 2018. Waste is an absorbing look at the multiple and changing ways that waste, waste of resources, possessions, time, money, etc., has been conceptualized in Japan since 1945. And more than a history of garbage or waste disposal, then, waste is a look at the aspirations and the discontents of a rapidly changing society, in which waste has been everything from an existential threat in the early post-war period to a critical part of the bright, good life of the affluent and aspirational middle classes. Professor Sinewer is attentive to the socioeconomic context of waste, from the poverty of the first post-war decade to the boom years of the 1960s, and from the traumatic oil shocks of the 1970s to the roaring and opulent bubble years of the 80s, then the post-bubble reckoning with waste in a slow growth era and beyond. Um, the book ranges widely, beginning with early post-war or sort of admonitions about uh, against waste, uh, then follows the development of the ideology and economy of leisure and the affluence of the heart, uh, and then tracing both the rise of ecological consciousness and Japan's progressive recycling and solid waste management systems, and then the coming of the post-2000 so-called decluttering movement, mm-hmm. peppered throughout with delightful and illustrative examples from period sources, and always conscious of historical continuities and discontinuities, waste is not just a story about waste consciousness in post-war Japan, but a story about the ways that we make meaning in our lives. Okay, so Dr. Sinewer, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, to talk about your book, uh, Waste, Consuming Post-War Japan. Um, It's a really fascinating topic, and I'm really curious about uh, how you came to this topic, especially because I think it's a significant departure from some of your earlier work. So can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, so my my first book was, as you say, uh, both on a very different kind of topic and was a very different kind of history. It was a kind of political history uh, of modern Japan from the 1860s to the 1960s. Uh, And... There's a there's a kind of story I think to kind of how I came to this topic and this what became a book. Uh, I was actually uh, in Tokyo doing research for the first book, actually for my dissertation. Um, when and I was living in this kind of neighborhood in Tokyo in a, in a cul-de-sac, uh, which had a rotating garbage duty. So the way that it worked in this particular neighborhood was um, every week the this little kind of plastic um, slat with all of the names of the families in the, uh, in the cul-de-sac would come around. And when it was your week, it was um, your responsibility to take care of the area where the garbage is disposed. So, you know, making sure that everything is tidy before garbage pickup and then after the garbage is picked up to refold the netting uh, that covers the garbage to kind of, you know, brush away anything that's left and, and clean everything up. Uh, and this happened multiple times a week because there are, you know, separate days for um, combustible garbage pickup, uh, for non-combustible goods, for plastic recycling, glass recycling, etc. So I had just gotten to Tokyo to start research, start dissertation research, and the first day that it was my turn to do garbage duty, I was was very careful about it. I, I you know, I did everything as I was supposed to. Um, but come the second or third day, I'd grown impatient because I, I wanted to be in the archives and I didn't want to be sitting in my apartment waiting for the garbage truck to come. <laughs> so I um, 
I said, okay, I'm going to go out, but I'm going to come back from the archives early so that I can do my, my gar garbage duty. Uh, but of course, even though I came back early, it was too late. Um, and someone else had already done the cleaning for me. Um, and this became a kind of topic of conversation <laughs> in the neighborhood, my, my garbage delinquency. So this started me thinking about all of the kind of social structures that are created around and are assumed by the management of garbage. Uh, but I was there to research something completely different. So I just kind of filed this idea away in the back of my head as something that I would, would return to at some point. Uh, so after the first book was out, I, I came back to this idea of garbage and thought initially that I was going to write a book about the history of garbage from Meiji through, you know, through the present, from the kind of 1860s through the present. But as I started working through this history of garbage, I couldn't quite figure out how to write a history of garbage that would tell us something about modern Japanese history that we didn't already know or that we aren't already quite familiar with. So kind of narratives about, you know, hygiene and civilization and modernization for the Meiji period, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I thought, <clears throat> how could I do something that's um, a little bit more new in terms of our ways of thinking about, about modern Japanese history? And that's when I decided to think a little bit more expansively about waste. So this project that was originally going to be about the history of garbage became and kind of evolved into a history of the idea of waste. And so the waste of not just things, but also resources and time, you know, stuff. And that's where I think, um, that, that kind of, that's where I, I figured that I could say something uh, new about modern Japanese history. And then I also decided to kind of shift the time frame. So not do this kind of large sweep from Meiji into the post-war, which is what I did with the first book, but precisely because I was looking at different kinds of waste, I wanted to kind of be more, a little bit more focused in the, in the time span. So to do something that was post-war. Um, and I also found this satisfying because I've been um, hoping that the field has kind of a conversation about the meanings of the post-war and to start to think about the post-war as a, as a kind of cohesive period. Uh, so that's kind of how I got to this history of the idea of waste in, in the post-war. Yeah, great. And it's, it's something that um, I think a lot of people, you know, as have a similar sort of experience the first time you move to Japan and come up against the, the massive social infrastructure that is the neighborhood uh, waste disposal. It, it really is rather striking. I remember that was, you know, my, one of my first experiences when I was living on my own uh, for the first time in 1998. And then it's the first sort of avenue for integration into my new neighborhood. I just bought a house here in Nagoya and it's the you know, uh -huh. It's how you meet the neighbors, even before yes. you go around and, you know, even before you go around and bring little, you know, souvenirs and say, you know, Yoroshiko onegaishimasu to everybody in the neighborhood, um, you, you meet them out at the trash yeah. disposal, <laughs> right? And, and yeah. very immediately, it's it's an incredibly intimate sort of experience as well, because you're literally looking through each other's garbage. And um, it's it's a it's a huge part of sort of the the social structure. And so I, I'm, I'm fascinated um, it, of course, with that aspect on a personal level, but also I thought it was really interesting the way that, and we're going to obviously be talking about this, um, that you went beyond these sort of questions of simply physical waste um, into the book. 
Um, and so that gives us a chance to transition into the book. Um, and so it's uh, it's laid out in in four uh, parts, uh, which are uh, you know, roughly uh, in chronological order. Um, you start off with part one, uh, re-civilization and re-enlightenment. Uh, this transitions of the early post-war period, 1945 to 1971. So I'd like to jump into that period and think about the early post-war, starting with chapter one, the imperatives of waste. Um, So you start off this article with this really uh, fascinating um, example of an article from uh, the women's magazine, Fujin Kurabu. Um, And I wonder if you could tell us about the article itself um, and then how it's representative of the attitudes at the time toward uh, waste and waste management and resource management, um, and also to what extent this represents a, a continuity or a discontinuity with uh, wartime and pre-war attitudes. Yeah, I mean, so this article in Fujin Club or, or Women's Club uh, was about how to preserve and cook food that might otherwise be thrown away. Um, And there were quite a few articles like this that were published in the kind of immediate post-war years. You know, articles about, you know, here here is how you should boil down, you know, corn cobs to make a kind of sweet syrup, for example, you know, corn syrup. Or here is how you can make edible, the tangerine peels that you might otherwise be throwing away. Or here's how you might pickle the core of the cabbage that otherwise might be thought of as inedible. Uh, And so a lot of this was responding to the kind of exigencies of survival in the immediate post-war years. So in a lot of ways, this is not about you know, here is how you should not waste, or here, here's what it means to be kind of virtuous and, and being conscious of waste. It's very much a kind of, here's how not to waste out of necessity. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't want to say that these articles were representative of attitudes at the time. And I think this is something in the book that I try to be very careful of, which is that a lot of the material that I look at in the book take the form of, you know, advice literature. So advice in newspapers or magazines or books. Um, And so that is, there's that kind of aspirational element to it that doesn't necessarily mean that people were actually doing what was being suggested in the pages. Um, But I think it does reflect uh, at least the kind of um, understanding on the part of people who were writing these these pieces uh, of what they thought would resonate with their readership. And it also reflects the fact that people were actually buying these, you know, magazines, newspapers at the time. So it does suggest something about, about the reception. But in any case, um, the Fujin Kudabu article does really speak to how the concern was about, for example, with wasting food in this case, the concern was about nutrients. Uh, it's certainly not about excess or, you know, you should just pay attention to waste because that is the kind of ethical and, and virtuous thing to do. It's about here is what you need to do to, to get by. Uh, and in that sense, it's, it's a continuity with the, with the wartime period, certainly. This notion of, um, you know, here is what you could do with your food, for example, so as to survive the, the kind of hardship of the wartime years, um, that, that, that kind of continues into the immediate post-war. Um, but it's very much a dis- discontinuity with kind of what develops in later decades as these kind of imperatives of, you know, survival 
uh, start to fade. Yeah, and this is you know, one of the one of the things that interested me is that uh, you know this is this is part of the book that you're referring to re-civilization uh, and and re-enlightenment, um, and you have a section in this chapter about the the re-civilizing project, um, which suggests a kind of you know both a continuity and a discontinuity uh, in the ways that people were. Uh, at least these sort of you know educated uh, the, the writing class uh, were looking at these questions about uh, waste and resource management, um, and you follow that up with this you know scientification of daily life, which is actually something that I think you know a lot of people talk about in the context of the uh, the interwar period uh, as well. So I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about um, those two sections of the chapter um, and how they fit into uh, what's being, you know, how, how waste is being conceptualized, what the consciousness is in the early post-war. What I was trying to illustrate with this idea of re-civilization and re-enlightenment is obviously, you know, to, to hark back to those kind of slogans of the early Meiji period, but to emphasize that this was um, it, it was not a kind of cycle. It was not kind of going back to the early Meiji period, but kind of post-war variations on these on these ideas. Uh, so, for example, if we think about uh, physical waste, if we think about garbage, the notion of garbage as being somehow backwards, that not being able to manage garbage being the sign of a, a kind of quote unquote uncivilized or you know not modern society. You know, those were ideas that were familiar from from the Meiji period that then kind of reemerge in in the post-war and then in some ways are kind of intensified by an additional layer of Japan having to kind of rehabilitate itself from the war. So these themes are very much at the forefront when if you know if we, if we move forward a little bit in time in in those years leading up to the Tokyo Olympics in 1964 you know, not only does Japan need to be civilized and modern and properly deal with its human waste and with its garbage, which is why you had all these kind of infrastructure projects, uh, you know, building of, of sewers and um, establishment of various systems to, to manage garbage. But the added kind of layer there was Japan also needed to appear civilized and modern so as to demonstrate that it had kind of, you know, it, that it could be embraced back into the community of quote unquote civilized and, and modern modern nations after the war. So that's that's kind of what the the themes of re-civilization, re-modernization, what I was trying to get at with that. Um, and then as as you were saying, there are other continuities as well uh, from from the pre-war period. So this idea of you know scientific measurement uh, that makes itself felt in all different areas of life. So, you know, going back to the articles about food waste, one of the themes in in a number of those articles was about the importance of measuring. You know, here is if you have this x amount of of flour, here's what you can make from it. Or, you know, if you have this amount of rice, here is how much you should be able to get out of it and the importance of measuring. So, you see it there. Uh, but you also see it you know, as you might expect, uh, in discussions of the the factory line and production, so not wasting resources, no extra movements, you know, measuring output, etc. And there's also the kind of household version of that. So, for example, you know, um, maps of the 
kind of diagrams of the rural kitchen demonstrating how much inefficiency of movement there was for the rural housewife to have to make a meal. And here's how you could lay out your kitchen in a kind of modern way to make it much more efficient and so therefore not waste time, movement, you know, energy, effort, etc. And those are all drawing on ideas of kind of scientific management from the from the interwar period that are kind of brought back into, you know, the post-war as well. So they're, they're in many ways kind of trans, trans-war ideas. Yeah, and I think that um, one of the, the really important points that uh, you sort of make in this, you know, you sort of stake out early in the book is that then this uh, early post, this first post-war decade of, you know, roughly 1945 to 1955 becomes kind of a, a landmark that gets invoked uh, in later periods um, with various meanings, you know, either that we uh, ought to uh, follow the good practices or that aren't we lucky that we don't have to uh, anymore, that, you know, we've sort of moved beyond that. And so it becomes this kind of uh, landmark for the way that post-war Japan then, you know, orients its uh, waste consciousness. Um, and so in that sense, I think it's really interesting that in your second chapter, uh, which treats the second post-war decade of you know, roughly 1955 on to around that time of the Olympics that you just mentioned. Um, it's actually entitled Better Living Through Consumption. And you know, it's in the context of uh, the uh, already, un, you know, uh, the, the, the economic recovery and social recovery that's already underway. And you talk about, um, quote, a middle-class society that valued the consumer uh, being increasingly viewed as the engine of future affluence but at the same time, because of that, you know, early, uh, because of the wartime and early post-war experience, there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty about that, uh, that sort of dream, that aspiration. So can you tell us how um, consumption is reshaped in this new context in the second post-war decade? Yeah, I mean, as, as you're suggesting, I think this is a kind of transitional period in the, in the late 50s uh, into the early 60s where people are starting to ask questions about what kind of consumption is acceptable and desirable. So coming out of the kind of wartime years of, you know, this, these kind of slogans of luxury is the enemy, etc. Um, what happens when, you know, conditions start to ease such that it is possible to consume more? And in fact, certain people are encouraging you to consume more for the sake of, of, of economic growth and economic expansion. So there, there are a lot of debates about, okay, is it okay to, you know, save up money to spend a lot on, you know, a purchase of a certain good, like an electric good? Is that okay? Uh, and what kind of consumption is acceptable? What is too luxurious? What is too extravagant? Uh, and, I think slowly there starts to be a shift towards kind of conceptions of waste consciousness shifting to jibe more with the values of mass consumerism as we move kind of further into the 19 into the 1960s where then the the kind of questions are not just about you know is it okay to buy this electric appliance is it okay to buy you know not just the washing machine but the black and white television, not just the black and white television, but the color television, but is it also okay to spend money on le on leisure, for example? Uh, so that, you know, what is considered a waste is 
at first kind of contentious and kind of reflects all the kind of anxieties of, of the emergence of mass consumerism. But then what is wasteful, what is considered to be wasteful shifts to accommodate the kind of values and desires of, of mass consumerism. Yeah, and so I, I, I take it this is sort of what you're referring to as the, uh, the quote, consumption revolution uh, in the 1960s. Yeah, which is, you know, at the point at which the certain goods, um, you know, the the washing machine, the color television, later the automobile, et cetera, actually become pretty widely accepted as markers of middle class life that people as consumers should desire to purchase. So a lot of the kind of ambiguity around consumption starts to fade in these kind of years of, of the of the consumption revolution. Yeah. Um you you have uh, one of the things that that I I really enjoy about the book obviously is the you know the many anecdotes but you also have these these great uh, little quotes and phrases you know one of them being stinginess is a virtue wasting money is fun which I think is is sort of unthinkable uh, in the the first uh, post war decade but the fact that this is you know already coming up as you say in the late fifties and early nineteen sixties uh, is quite striking really yeah and there are these kind of great you know, stories that people have of kind of, you know, what if it, what would I do if I could imagine being wasteful? You know, so this this from a kind of slightly earlier period, what what would be the thing that would be kind of scandalously wasteful? And at first, you know, it's quite modest, like, you know, buying a cigarette and just kind of smoking it a little bit and then just throwing it away without finishing it. Like that would just be the ultimate luxury. Um, which, you know, at at a certain period of time would have been the case after, you know, having your kind of makeshift cigarettes during the war, et cetera, you're not going to just throw things out. So this notion that being able to throw something away, that being wasteful was a kind of luxury. And then dare one say, actually kind of enjoyable. Yeah. yeah the idea of waste <laughs> um, as sort of, aspira- kind of yeah. an aspirational ideal for the, the, you know, the, the, the bright middle-class life that we all lust for is, it's just it, the fact that it comes so quickly, you know, by 1960, you have uh, the Omiuri uh, running an article as you have here in the book, you know, is consumption a virtue? Is luxury a virtue? And the answer is, you know, kind of maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 So something that was unthinkable, you know, a, a decade earlier becomes like, well, yeah, okay, maybe. <laughs> by, right. By that and time. so, so this is uh, sort of how we, you know, we wind up that that first decade, uh, in second decade of the, the post war. Um, and then, you know, you sort of reach a, a peak of, you know, Japanese, uh, you know, economic uh, recovery and self-confidence, you know, recovery of self-confidence and status in the world with, you know, as you've mentioned, the 1964 Olympics, the Shinkansen, you have another Olympics that everybody forgets about later in Sapporo, um, and, you know, and the, the expo in, in Osaka in 1970, and Japan's riding very high, um, you know, despite uh, a certain, you know, uh, the um, uh, domestic political context, uh, you know, all aside, um, you know, com- economically coming out of the 1960s, and then you get into the 1970s, and this is where you uh, take up part two, uh, which I think is rather aptly titled Shocks, Shifts, and Safeguards, uh, Defending Middle Class Lifestyles, uh, 1971 to 1981. 
Um, and so we're, I guess we need to talk about these, these shocks and these shifts. And so, you know, we've, we've established, uh, that the middle-class lifestyle, you know, includes a certain amount of, uh, pleasurable waste or at least aspirational waste. Um, but then that comes under a lot of stress in the 1970s. Um, and you start, you start to talk about this in chapter three, wars against waste. Um, and again, you have this fantastic uh, little anecdotal uh, reference at the beginning, which I wonder if you could tell us about. You, know, you mentioned the uh, the movie uh, Gojira Tai Hedora, you know, Godzilla versus was this the smog monster? Was that it uh, from 1971? Yeah, yeah. yeah from can you tell us about the movie yeah. um, and its significance for sort of understanding um, a shift in attitudes toward uh, waste and waste consciousness in the 1970s. Um, and then we'll go on to focus on the actual war against waste. Yeah, so this movie uh, came out in 1971. It's it's unusual in the Godzilla series, I think, in part because it's got this kind of trippy early 1970s feel to it. Uh, and it has a very clear kind of social message. And it's it's not complicated. It's very straightforward, which is a kind of criticism of environmental degradation. So there are images of industrial pollution, you know, smokestacks that are, are spewing exhaust. There are these long pans, you know, these long shots of waste of garbage on, you know, the bay floor and uh, with or, or on top, floating on top, you know, glass bottles or television sets in the water um, on the surface, you know, sewage and rubber tires and plastic bottles. And all of this as representing the the costs of the high growth era. So all of the images of waste and pollution in this Godzilla film uh, reflect this larger realization about the various costs, um, and in this case, the, the environmental costs of, of, high, of the high growth era of, of kind of double digit economic growth. Uh, and so I think in that sense is very reflective of this kind of realization in the early 1970s um, that, you know, resources aren't finite, that what had been fueling, was literally fueling economic growth um, would not always be so inexpensive, that there have been costs and prices that have been paid uh, to which people had not paid all that much attention until, until the early 1970s. Right, and so this this comes uh, together with the um, the the sort of larger context of uh, the the chapter, um, which is the war against uh, waste, uh, the so-called Gomi Senso of uh, of the early nineteen seventies, uh, which gives the the chapter its title. So, can you tell us a, specifically about the, the this war against waste, and again, sort of how that uh, dovetails with you know what you're seeing in uh, the Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, and this rising sense of a, a different kind of anxiety about the costs of waste in the nineteen seventies. Yeah, in, in 1971, the governor of Tokyo declares war against waste. Um, he declares, and he uses the phrase, gomisenso. And uh, his main concern, uh, or his primary concern, I should say, was uh, the building of incinerators to deal with what was called the, the garbage problem. So the garbage problem was multifold. One was just in sheer amount of garbage that was being produced, uh, more so than was able to be dealt with by the kind of current systems, current infrastructure. 
there is also the issue of more and more plastics in the waste stream. Uh, so, so that was an issue as well. Also more kind of toxic um, chemicals and things in the waste stream. Also more larger items in the garbage. So, you know, the, the television sets that people had consumed with, with such uh, excitement in the previous decade uh, ended up, you know, in the waste stream. And so you have more kind of bulky items in the trash. So there's lots of concern about garbage management in the 1970s. So what the, the kind of main goal of, of, of the Gomisenso was to site more incinerators in various areas of Tokyo uh, with the philosophy of, you know, every area of Tokyo managing its own waste. Um, so, so that was the Gomi Senso. And one of the, the kind of outcomes of the Gomi Senso is that it made garbage very visible, that there were lots of images of these piles of garbage on city streets. It brought a lot of attention to garbage and physical waste, um, such that, you know, it made people think more about the kind of end process of mass production and mass consumption. The kind of realization that mass consumption, mass production, and mass consumption leads to mass waste. Um, but there were also these larger questions that went along with the garbage war, which was these kind of critiques of of high growth of the high growth era, uh, and so a kind of reconsideration of you know what should the goals of you know the country really be? Should it be you know, should it be GDP or is there something more um, to, to keep in mind and to consider when thinking about kind of goals, aspirations of, of the country going forward? And all of that was compounded by the oil crisis in 1973, which, yeah, which brought a lot of attention to waste of resources, waste of energy, such that all of this the kind of waste of stuff or the, the garbage problem, the waste of energy, waste of resources, all really become interwoven as part and parcel of this kind of larger, larger challenges of this, of this moment. Yeah. And so, and, and that um, sort of transition uh, that this, this shift, as you've, as you've called it um, in a consciousness about uh, the, the, the waste inherent in the high growth system um leads us to, I think, uh, chapter four, uh, where, which is called a bright stinginess. It's another one of these, these wonderful, uh, phrases that are sprinkled throughout the book. Um, so this idea of a, a bright kitschy or stinginess, um, it's such a great phrase. Where where does it come from and, and sort of what does it mean and how does it fit into this context of, uh, the, the, the war against waste, uh, and the oil shocks and the sort of shifting, uh, consciousness uh, when it comes to the the systemic um, causes and effects of waste. I came across this phrase "akarui kechi" or bright stinginess um, in a roundtable discussion about kechi or stinginess from uh, 1974. It was used by um, this man named Suzuki Kenji, who was a, a television announcer for NHK, and he was moderating this roundtable discussion. And he used this phrase which is a, such a kind of clever phrase insofar as you've got the kind of idea of brightness or akadui, which really embodied the kind of idea of the kind of bright middle-class life, this idea that had been built in, in the kind of previous decade or so. 
with the idea of catchy or kind of stinginess or frugality. And I, it's, I'm not entirely sure that this, this particular phrase was that widely used in the 1970s, but for me, it really encapsulated a kind of theme and an idea that was articulated with, with frequency, which was, you know, now that there's been this kind of realization about the finite nature of resources and the sheer amount of stuff that we're throwing away, uh, we need to be more catchy. But this catchy, the stinginess and this frugality was not in any way supposed to look like the stinginess or frugality of the wartime or immediate post-war years. So kind of this goes back to what you were saying earlier about how those immediate post-war years become this kind of benchmark or this kind of imagined moment in, in later reincarnations of waste consciousness. And here, it the reference to the post to the wartime and immediate post-war is definitely one of we do not want to go back to that. So that hence the akarui part of the akarui kechi, which is, you know, you should be conscious of waste. But that is not to sacrifice, that is not supposed to mean sacrificing the comforts and the conveniences of middle class life uh, for which people had been striving for, for many years. Um, so, you know, it's one thing to, you know, turn off the lights in, in a room if you're, not, if you're not there. You know, it is one thing to, you know, start to kind of these, these kind of efforts to to separate your trash into recyclables and non-recyclables takes off in the 1970s. That's one thing. But those are not considered to be major infringements on, you know, day to day life. Uh, and so that's the kind of important thing, which is here are some minor things that we can do um, that are conscious of waste, but don't actually require that much of us. And that will help kind of defend these middle class lifestyles that have been achieved. Yeah. And I think this is sort of the, you know, to, to risk a terrible pun, it's sort of the catchiness of catchiness um, that, that, you know, there's a it's it's, as you put it, uh, moderation rather than abstention, which I think is, you know, again, this one of these wonderful phrases of yours that comes up through the book, this idea that, you know, you can uh, be frugal without sacrificing the comforts of, uh, you know, mass consumption and middle-class lifestyle. Um, and this idea of, of sort of a, a moderation that allows for progress rather than regression. Um, and this is that, again, that sort of, you know, totemic, uh, amuletic in, invocation of the early post-war as the, you know, the bad old days that we refuse to go back to. Um, and so everything is, you know, sort of, oriented to, toward, you know, moving away from that somehow and, and never going back in that direction. And yet, you know, uh, and so that even when, you know, waste becomes problematic, we still have to keep moving away from that. Right. Um, yeah. And so, so this, um, this kind of sets up uh, part three, where, which is about wealth and its discontent. So part, part three is called uh, Abundant Dualities, uh, Wealth and its discontent in the 19, Discontents in the 1980s and Beyond. Um, and, you know, here we, we start to see, uh, you begin to reference uh, in a number of these sort of uh, phrases like yutori and, you know, uh, monobanare and kokoro no yutakasa and all these sort of uh, Japanese phrases about uh, a kind of affluence of the heart that, be, that, really becomes um, the the focus of part four. Um, but before we get to that, in uh, in part three and chapter five, consuming desires, um, 
we've you've already mentioned uh, the idea of you know luxury is the enemy. This uh, this very very famous uh, uh, wartime slogan. Um, but you have uh, in 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 one of the figures at the beginning of the chapter uh, the Isetan Shinjuku department store advertisement, uh, which uses the slogan. Uh, luxury is not the enemy, but luxury is splendid. So that in, instead of zeitaku wa teki, zeitaku wa sticky, which is, again, a, a horrible pun, but also one of my favorites. Um, and so can you tell us about um, how this, uh, you know, suggests this, it, to me, it sort of suggests a complex interplay between material and spiritual affluence um, and some continuities and discontinuities with this 1970s context. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how consciousness of waste in all its forms um, and the and what that means for a middle-class lifestyle um, differs or doesn't differ from the 1970s? There are certain things that continue from the 1970s. So certain things in terms of, um, for example, kind of municipal practices of recycling, for example, that were established in the 1970s, those continue into the 1980s. Uh, those, especially in the kind of waste management industry and those who had been especially attuned to issues of waste in the 1970s, those voices continue to exist in the 1980s, but they are much more on the margins. They are not central uh, and mainstream uh, in discussions about waste consciousness as they had been in the 1970s. So, I, there's very much an attenuation of waste consciousness in the 1970s, as as you might expect. Uh, when it when it comes to you know we kind of think about the 1980s as this kind of epitome of of materialism and mass consumption, and in many ways that's that's not untrue. And and there is this kind of weakening of of waste consciousness in the 1980s. So you know things like phrases that you, you you mentioned like monobara monobara or, or kind of separation uh from things for example i mean a lot of this is just um they're just marketing slogans uh which are in in fact intended to encourage consumption so maybe you're not explicitly told to spend money on stuff in some cases you know there there's kind of you know advertisements to spend on services instead or on leisure but also spending on leisure also then, you know, when you need all this like equip, you know, equipment and accoutrement for your various hobbies is also all about consumption. So there, there's, there's a way in which this notion of, uh, of an affluent heart that's used or this kind of, you know, certain separation from things uh, is really just, a, uh, in many cases, a marketing slogan to encourage consumption. Yeah, uh, my my daughter has a, a bento box uh, that says something. It's you know, it's in some sort of uh, fake French, I believe, that says something like, you know, true true happiness is being happy with the things you have, not buying more stuff. Um, and it just, yeah, it, it seems to me that there's a certain resonance with with that sort of uh, marketing. Um, that, uh, that that I'm seeing here in in the 1980s, um, in, in the way that you're describing this sort of you know consuming desires. Yeah, um, but I think also there starts to be, and this this I talk about in the in the kind of next chapter in chapter six, uh, there starts to be the kind of seeds of really thinking about this idea of an affluent heart in a more sincere way and not, not, not just as a kind of 
you know, cynical marketing ploy, but actually thinking about what makes for a good life and what makes for a happy life. And is it really necessary to have all this stuff uh, in order to, you know, feel contented? And I think that taps into this kind of dissatisfaction in the 1980s, which was, you know, we were supposed to be working so hard first for kind of economic reconstruction, then economic growth. And in the 1980s, when it seems like we should have arrived, life doesn't feel like it was supposed to feel, you know, as as we were kind of promised, that there's not an abundance of time to do with as you want. There, you know, things don't actually feel so comfortable. Um, There doesn't seem to be a kind of you know, this, this sense of relaxation that people had been promised. So it, those conversations do start to happen in the 1980s, uh, this kind of rethinking about, well, what is it that affluence is supposed to mean? Right. And so you talk about, uh, the, you, you really tackle those themes in detail in chapters six and seven. Um, so actually, let's move on to chapter six, which is a, you know appropriately titled Living the Good Life with a question mark at the end. Um, and to, to me, I think this is you know really well again introduced with this uh, anecdote about uh, the 1978 opening of the the Island of Dreams Park or Yubenoshima um, in uh, former landfill number 14, which again just the irony kills me. But uh, you know in in Tokyo. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the park itself and why it's illustrative of this sort of trend toward thinking about the good life in a different way in the 1980s? Um, and in particular, uh, it is a, a, a leisure facility and sort of how then um, leisure fits into questions about waste and waste consciousness um, in the sort of, you know, as you've said, the sort of the opulent uh, 80s. Yeah, the Island of Dreams Park, uh, Yumenoshima, is a is a huge area which now has, you know, um, uh, playing fields, like a soccer field, and then it has a facility that has all kinds of opportunities for, for for recreation and leisure. Um, you know, I don't I don't even recall the various courts that are in there <laughs> um, and various things. Um, but it's a huge facility. Which, if you go to it now, it's very striking because if you think of this this area as having once been landfill or kind of the landfill that is now under your feet, you do get a sense of the scale of <laughs> the landfill uh, and and the sheer amount of stuff that had been thrown away. Um, and I talk about it in this kind of metaphorical sense, insofar as you know the 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 trash being kind of literal, uh, being literally underground and out of sight, and upon it is is constructed something that is meant to encourage recreation, leisure, enjoyment of time. And I do think that there starts to be. Um, I shouldn't say starts to be, but there's there is a kind of attention in the 1980s to you know free time not being an unproductive waste, but actually something that is desirable and something necessary for yutori or a sense of you know relaxation or ease. Um, and so you know whereas in, you know in decades past unproductive time might have been considered to be a waste of time here the 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 notion that free time is not a waste just because it might not be so productive uh, starts to kind of come into circulation, which is also a kind of response to attention at, at, at this moment to overwork, you know, and and exhaustion, uh, and so on. 
Um, and so, you know, for example, there's a, a, a comic that comes out in the 1980s, um, Dai Tokyo Bimbo Seikatsu Monogatari, I think, if I recall correctly, um, where the main character doesn't have a regular job. He, he does things, you know, kind of odds and ends occasionally to make money to get by. Um, but he's intentionally not a sarariman, even though he graduated from, you know, first-rate university. He's chosen to live in a very small apartment with very few things. And what he does with his time is he sits around. <laughs> you know, he'll read a little bit. He'll talk with his friends. Um, but just kind of sitting there uh, and not doing anything that might be construed as productive is modeled here as something that might actually be desirable, at least something to think about. Right, and this, um, you know, Dai Tokyo Bimbo Seikatsu Manyo, the the manual for for poor, for living poor in Greater Tokyo. Um, you you do uh, again have a, a a figure from from there that you know talks about the undesirability of wartime poverty, and again, it's sort of being invoked as that thing that you know we don't want to go back to, um, and that you know it's sort of interesting to me this this I this uh, the 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 frita, you know, the the free timer as as hero. I didn't realize that this was you know sort of a a thing, uh, so to speak, as early as the 1980s. And it was quite quite a revelation for me um, that you know even if that's you know something of something a little bit satirical, a little bit aspirational, um, the fact that this is even sort of being you know bandied around and tossed around in this way in the 1980s was somewhat surprising to me. Yeah, and this is actually a different in some ways, a different meaning of furita than the one that develops in later years that comes out of economic insecurity. Um, here, it is a kind of a, a decision about employment and lifestyle by choice. So the character here has decided to be a furita, which again is different from the furita of later years. It is also different, as you were saying, from, from the wartime and the media post-war years, which is this is a poverty, a kind of quote unquote poverty by choice. And that's what makes all the difference is the kind of deliberate decision and to be in a position to make the deliberate decision to live in this way. Um, so this this question of of time and and wasting of time um, clearly you know it's it's a big part of uh, the sort of changing perceptions of leisure and the the value of leisure and time and a sort of affluence of the heart the utori question um, but it comes up in a in a somewhat more literal sense uh, in chapter seven um, which is called battling the time thieves. Um, so I wonder if you could uh, tell us a little bit about this. Um, you know, it's continuing this this discussion that you're having about the uh, about leisure and about questions of time. Um, but you start us off with um, the uh, very the, the the highly the, the high popularity, uh, the great reception in Japan of uh, the novel by Michael Ende, the German uh, novel novelist who wrote uh, Neverending Story, if I remember right, as well. Um, yeah, yeah who's mm-hmm. uh, Momo, the mysterious story of the time thieves and the girl who brought the stolen time back to the people. And this came out in Japanese uh, translation in 1983, I guess it was. Uh, 1976. Oh, I'm actually. sorry. Excuse me. The, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so in, it, came, it came out in the 1970s and, and it had an enormously uh, a good reception in Japan, which you, th- which you suggest is uh, indicative of uh, concerns uh, about time and about uh, the the sort of use and waste of time in Japan. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, the book comes out in translation in 1976, but it really becomes popular in the 1980s. And the kind of um, antagonists in the novel 
are the the kind of time thieves uh, who are these men who who are all dressed all in gray. They wear these suits and bowler hats, and uh, in essence, they steal people's time. So they go around and ask people, "Well, how are you using your time?" Well, clearly, it's a waste to, for example you know, be dating this woman that you don't intend to marry, for example, or spending too much time with your pet parakeet or, you know, whatever it might be, uh, these things that are, are deemed not productive. Uh, and what, what happens, apparently what is happening is that these time thieves are then convincing people to deposit this quote-unquote wasted time into a time-saving bank. And it is off the time that is in the bank that these men in gray, uh, these time thieves, live. Uh, and they're juxtaposed against the kind of protagonist in, in the novel, which is really a children's book, although it was, it was widely read by, by adults as well. So the protagonist, Momo, who has no sense of, no, no kind of sense of a commodified notion of time <laughs> or precise measurement of time. She's this kind of young girl who um, is known for, you know, listening carefully to her friends and spending time with them. Um, and so is not at all beholden to these kind of systems of, of, of measurement and commodification uh, when it comes to time or anything else for that matter, stuff either. So there are these two very different notions of time that come into conflict uh, with a kind of clear criticism of the notion of time being treated as money. And in the kind of commentary about Momo uh, in the 1980s and beyond, there's a lot of, of um, resonance with this idea of, you know, people have been too concerned with measuring time, have been too concerned with this notion of time having to be productive, uh, that perhaps, you know, notions of well-being or the good life should not be based on these these kind of notions of wasted time as they have been defined, but to think more um, capaciously or at least differently about how time should be, I was going to say how time should be spent, but even that very language is a kind of, you know, using the same, same language of, of money uh, for time, but, but, you know, thinking not of time in terms of something that can be measured, commodified, spent, um, yeah, and and it seems to me that you know uh, your your argument is that in the '80s this is you know uh, a response uh, to some extent you know it's a sort of sense of crisis about um, the uh, ways in which we've uh, lost the ability to use our time freely uh, and without constraints and without the sort of you know the uh, the the sort of Damocles you know made by Taylorism sort of hanging over our head and you know making us. Uh, overly self-conscious and then um and this brings us you know into this uh the last part of the book which is um affluence of the heart uh identities and values in the slow growth era 1991 to the present because it seems to me that you know here this again this question of um that you're talking about in terms of leisure uh and time in chapters six and seven in part three um then take on a, a different sort of valence a different kind of value uh and nuance um, in the 1990s, which you referred to as, uh, and it's again, it's a great phrase, the unsettled years. Um, and so this seems to me to be, uh, 
that, that our notions of, of leisure and time and are disrupted again um, in, in certain ways uh, and that it's reflected in changing waste consciousness. Um, in other words, so, so the question I want to ask is then how did waste consciousness change in the, the slow burn of the post-bubble 1990s? Yeah, I mean, I think in the 1990s, in some ways, there was much that was the same in terms of waste consciousness. That is a kind of uh, attention to waste of resources and energy, you know, the calls for recycling and reuse. Plus, you know, that still waste consciousness was not to mean sacrificing comfort and convenience. All of those ideas, especially from the 70s, uh, if a bit muted in the 1980s, um, come are, are still there in the 1990s and more so in the 1990s than they had been in, in the immediate previous decade. But the framing starts to be more in terms of a kind of global environmental consciousness, I think. Whereas, you know, there had been um, an attention to the environment in the 1970s, it tended to be a little bit more anthropocentric. Um, but in the 1990s, the, the vision is, is kind of more outward looking. It is more global. And also that environmentalism becomes more a kind of good in itself than I think it was uh, in the 1970s. Um, so there's more of a kind of econom ecological mindset. So, for example, you see more in the 1990s the idea of green consumption, you know, eco ecologically minded ways or things to consume is something that you see um, in the 1990s. So, so many of the similar ideas, especially from the 1970s, that are reframed in this terms of, of a kind of befitting a, a global environmental age. Yeah, one of the things that you talk about in Chapter 8, Greening Consciousness, is um, that 1990, excuse me, 1989 uh, is seen by some as sort of year one, you know, the, the zero year, I guess, um, of a global environmental age. And, and, you know, as you said, I mean, you already have a sort of uh, the beginning of recycling programs in the 1970s and, uh, you know, a, a fairly strong uh, sense of the uh, sort of the, you know these these uh, uh, for the problems of material waste. So so what's what's changing and why is it that people see you know the the, the 1990s essentially as the dawning of this global environmental age in Japan and how does that sort of play out um, in the everyday life of people in the in the 1990s? Yeah, and I think you know in in part it's because Japan was a participant in what was a kind of global environmental moment. Uh, so I think that that shaped a lot of the kind of discourse about environmental consciousness in Japan in the late 18, I'm sorry, the late 1980s and into the 1990s. Um, so, you know, 1988 was the year that Japan's environmental agency actually articulated a, a commitment to dealing with global warming. That was also the year when Japan became a member of the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change. You know, in 1989, you have the Tokyo Conference on Global Environmental Protection, uh, the position of, of global environmental minister uh, and the Ministerial Council on Global Environmental Protection. Those are established in 1989, actually set goals for, you know, limiting carbon dioxide emissions. So this was kind of at the, at the national level, a commitment. So I think that that is partially, or maybe more than partially, in, in large part helps shape the kind of discourse about about waste consciousness uh, into the 1990s. 
Yeah, uh, and so th this is, uh, I think, uh, where where you get the the in some sense where you get the title of of chapter nine. We are all waste conscious now, um, and uh, which which I think is is a, a really uh, you know my my first engagement with uh, Japan came in the nineteen nineties, and I I certainly had that feeling again, particularly coming from the United States, that gee everybody is waste conscious here. Uh, and um, one of the the, the key words uh, that, that you engage with in chapter nine is multi-nai. Um, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the word, uh, where it comes from, um, and also how it's mobilized in the 1990s and 2000s. Uh, and again, you have this this great example uh, of the uh, picture book, the children's picture book, Multai Nai Basan, which I will admit I read to my children when they were small. Um, <laughs> it actually, it reminds me a little bit of a, a sort of like Oshin from the 1980s, you know, this sort of homage to an earlier, more virtuous generation of women as sort of moral leaders uh, in you know showing our way forward. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about the, the word Multai Nai uh, where it comes from, how it's mobilized in books like Multainai Basan, and maybe a little bit about the book itself, if you'd like. So the word Multainai, which I translate as kind of wasteful or kind of how wasteful, like how Multainai, um, there's a real boom in the use of the word in the 2000s. In fact, was labeled by some as a Multainai boom. <laughs> uh, and there was in 2004, uh, that was the year that the first Motai Nai Basan, or maybe No Waste Grandma book, was published. Um, and Motai Nai Basan, as you're saying, as you're saying, is very important that she is grandma, <laughs> which is that she is clearly of the wartime generation. Uh, and this is where I think what what we've been saying about the ways in which those immediate you know, the wartime and immediate post war years get constructed later on in the post war years. That's really where this comes into play, where Motainai Basan is constructed here as embodying the waste conscious virtues of that previous wartime generation. And there's a kind of real nostalgia for this era where Japan was said to be waste conscious. Now, what's totally forgotten in this nostalgia is that people were not just choosing to be waste conscious, but this was a kind of waste consciousness of choice, uh, not not of choice, right. but of, of, right, right, of, of, survival. Yeah, of survival and the exigencies of the time. And that is completely forgotten. Um, so you have Motai Naibasan who kind of descends on her young grandson uh, and his mother, who's also clearly born in the post-war, uh, who laps into wasteful ways of various kinds. So, you know, taking more food at a buffet than they can eat, for example. Um, you know, who keep the water running when they're brushing their teeth. Uh, but also I think what's captured by the idea of multainai is that it is not just about kind of specific kind of concrete things in terms of, of wastefulness, but also things like um, it's wasteful to videotape or take photos at a sporting match rather than actually kind of immersing yourself in the moment and enjoying, you know, the camaraderie and the teamwork, like actually in, enjoying the sporting match, that that is also considered to be motainai. Or it's motainai to just look at the autumn leaves without actually kind of playing with them and playing in them. So motainai becomes very, very expansive. It's, it's not just strictly the waste of resources or energy or things. It's also just thinking about 
I mean, in some ways it goes back to this idea of the, this affluence of the heart about, about enjoyment um, and pleasure and, and happiness. Yeah, and I think one of the really things that was uh, that, that really struck me about um, you know thinking about Multai Naibasan, the you know, the book and the character um, is the the focus on children, which you you touch on in, in a number of ways in this chapter, um, you know, in terms of uh, you know outreach to children, educational outreach, and I certainly you know I noticed I have um, kids in public school here in Nawa, and I, I noticed this here. Um, you know the uh, traveling to the the waste uh, the, uh, the the water treatment plant um, as part of a school trip, and I noticed that you know one of the things that you talk about in the chapter is your own tour of an incineration plant. Uh, can you tell us about that? Because I thought that was a really um, a fascinating uh, uh, anecdote that you have, and, it, and I think it says a lot about the changing ways that the public is is being engaged um, in thinking about waste. Yeah, so I took this tour of an incineration plant uh, in Tokyo, which actually sits next to the Island of Dreams Park. Uh, and yeah, uh, and actually it provides a lot of the electricity for um, uh, things that happen at the Island of Dreams Park. You know, it heats, heats the pool and that kind of thing. Um, but I, um, so one of the things that surprised me about the tour was so you know there's it starts with this kind of video that you're shown and this video is clearly not intended for adults (laughs) uh you know it's got a little quiz section it's got animated characters uh and so I, I asked about this because I had first come across the idea of touring incineration plants uh in my research on the 1970s where it was mainly housewives who were encouraged to tour incineration plants as a way of convincing housewives that these were modern, scientific, safe, healthy, uh, you know, plants, and so that you know you shouldn't you shouldn't balk at the idea of having one in your neighborhood. And this was part of you know the the kind of war on garbage and the push to to build more incinerators. And here, this was something quite different. Uh, and so it was, as you say, aimed at elementary school students, fourth graders in particular. Uh, who are all required to to visit an incineration facility? So they also, you know, showed me things that they hand out to to the school kids when they visit. Things like you know toys, like a kaleidoscope made out of recycled incinerator ash. Uh, there's also um, the attempt to make the incinerator feel um, or the plant feel more cute, approachable. Every every incinerator in Tokyo apparently has a, a mascot. Um, this one, because it's located by the water, the mascot for this particular one was Rui, the dolphin, uh, who is very cute. Um, so <laughs> uh, so the, the audience, as you say, had shifted um, clearly to, to being about children. Also, what struck me was the sense of running out of space was did not actually seem as dire as it had been articulated in the 1970s, uh, which is, you know, the byproduct of the incineration process is kind of ash. Because there has been technological development and things that can be done with the ash, making certain kinds of concrete, using it for construction, etc., that there's still, you know, there's still running out of space, but it is not happening at the kind of alarming rate as it was experienced in the, in the 1970s. So that's, that struck me as well. Yeah. Um, 
so I think I, I want to uh, jump on to the, the the last chapter here, um, and just to, to 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 look back a second. I mean, I think that in um, in chapters eight and nine, uh, in chapter eight, you talk about a sort of an opening outward. Um, thinking about the earth, the environment, and ecology, and then in chapter ten, uh, there's this sort of branding of uh, you know a, a, an ecologically uh, sensitive and progressive Japanese lifestyle that's part of a a cool Japan uh, kind of approach to Japanese soft power in the world. Um, and then in chapter ten, sorting things out, uh, you suggest that that things are a little bit different. Uh, you know, with this new move to uh, decluttering or danshari. And of course, you know, now uh, my uh, media and social media uh, tells me that we are living in the age of uh, Maria Kondo's uh, series as the number one (laughs) on Netflix. I wonder if, I I hate to ask, but I wonder if you have anything to say about that as well. Um, But if you could tell us a little bit about the sort of um, shift from an outward focus uh, on the world and on, you know, uh, in terms of eco- ecology and also in terms of, you know, sort of a coup to Japan uh, approach to soft power, and then an inward sort of turn with uh, Dan Shardi, this idea of decluttering. Um, and then if you feel that you need to comment on what you <laughs> please feel, feel free to do so. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not sure that there's a shift so much as a kind of layering of different ways of thinking about wastefulness. So, you know, I think this idea of motainai continues later into the 2000s, arguably to the present, the kind of motainai campaign that you referenced, uh, which was a campaign launched by um, the Mainichi Newspapers Company and the Tochu Corporation. Uh, that continues. So that that idea of motainai, which is fairly expansive, but also environmentally focused, um, that continues. Um, but at the same time, there's been this kind of, in some cases, explicit pushback against motainai by people who are writing in this decluttering vein. So this kind of literature about, you know, um, getting rid of excess stuff and organizing your space. Um, and, you know, Kondo Marie, her book, her first book came out in Japanese in, in 2011. She is, in some ways, very different from the motainai folks in so far as you know she explicitly says this sense of guilt for throwing things away is an obstacle to cleaning your space so you need to get over this sense of motainai uh she is not very concerned with the garbage produced by her decluttering method she doesn't speak so much about what you're supposed to do with this stuff that you're throwing out uh so what she is concerned about is your kind of, you know, what I, the kind of affective self about what is bringing you joy. So, you know, as I'm, as I don't think that I need to explain now, since people seem so familiar with her, but the, but the heart of her method is, you know, you're supposed to pick up a thing. If it brings you joy, then you keep it. Uh, if it doesn't bring you joy, you throw it out. Um, but so this is very much, at odds with the motainai idea. It's not, it doesn't have an environmental consciousness dimension to it. It's unconcerned with what you do with the stuff once you throw it away. Um, it is, and, and in addition to that, I would say it's, it's not a critique of consumption. It doesn't make you actually think that much about consumption. And it is very centered, not just on, um, what makes you happy, but also on things and the relationship that you have with things. 
Uh, so it's very stuff centered, actually. Um, so I think it's, you know, in some ways, there's a similarity to the Motainai insofar as this notion of what brings you joy or what makes you happy, <laughs> you know, that that is shared, I think, between the kind of decluttering people and the Motainai people. But in the ways that they think about the environment, to some extent about consumption, certainly about garbage production, uh, Motainai and, and um, decluttering are, are quite different. Yeah, and I think it's also sort of it interests me that you know Condomaria is now uh, something of in in a strange way a, a a cultural ambassador for for this cool Japan kind of lifestyle uh, exportation that that you touch on in in chapter nine that you know in a weird way uh, both both positively and negatively and I see that there's you know a significant um, divergence in the way that people. Uh, uh, feel about uh, about her her show and her methodology but it seems to me that it you know it is um part of a, a sense that you know of of a sort of japanese lifestyle as a kind of vanguard in thinking about our relationship to things for better and for worse yeah i think that she has done a tremendous job of marketing herself <laughs> uh, because you know many of her ideas they're not new um, certainly some of the concrete suggestions that she has, the ideas like, you know, everything should have a designated place so you'll know what to find it. That is familiar from the kind of Taylorite literature of, of the interwar <laughs> yes, exactly. years, right? Um, <clears throat> so uh, she has done a wonderful job of marketing herself. And I think also, you know, has has a kind of well-polished message that really resonates with this kind of current moment of kind of searching for some some kind of meaning i think um but is problematic in so far as um it promotes this kind of image of japanese people and japanese families living in these quasi minimalist very organized homes <laughs> whereas you know whereas i would say the the reasons why Kondo Marie is popular in Japan and in the United States and in Germany and various places uh, are the same, which is that is in this kind of, you know, relatively affluent first world societies, the, the shared problem of having an excess of stuff is what is driving her popularity. It is not that. Yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree with you. I mean, I think she's very much uh, in that sense. It reminds me of the the old uh, the, the misunderstanding of the old saying of "deru kugi wa utareru," the the nail that sticks up gets yeah. hammered down. You know, you wouldn't say that if there weren't so damned many nails sticking <laughs> up all over right, the place. And it's right. not that you know, it's not that Japan hammers down all the nails. It's 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 just sort of you know, it, the fact is that there are nails sticking up all over the place. And you know, Kondo Maria could not be popular if we all lived in the minimalist decluttered world that she sort of uh, suggests, you know, that, that particularly Japan, some, that she's not representative in that sense of uh, a lived reality in Japan so much as an, 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 an aspirational ideal for the way that we uh, organize our built and lived environment. Yeah. yeah. And an aspirational ideal, just as aspirational in Japan as in the United States. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 
Um, so I, that's sort of a strange place to, <laughs> to talk about your book, and I apologize for having uh, dragged you into the world of, of Netflix and its cultural politics. Uh, but I do want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us today about your book. Uh, and uh, I look forward to having a chance to talk to you again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 